some of the songs that we sing, when the words just hit different. Does that happen to you on a Sunday morning? It's a familiar song, but man, it just hits different. All I once held dear, now I count as lost. Why? Why would anybody do that? Why would somebody have all that this world has to offer and say it's nothing? You know why? Because they've met Jesus. And he's everything. He's not a feeling or an emotion. He's not a guarantee that things will go right in this life. He's not a guarantee that things will get better in the natural for you. You may stay sick, broke, and die alone, but Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to John 6. While you're turning, I want to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit this morning and to the text this morning. Give me a moment to set this up. We live in a world of posers and fakers. Now, in America, we employ them in politics, so that's a whole different story. But we live in a world of posers and fakers, and increasingly, in America, we employ them as pastors and put them in charge of things. Jesus spoke and taught in such a way that attracted a lot of people And there were some that were with him that were with him, and there were some that were near him that were not with him. It's the same thing today. Um, It's hard sometimes to tell the difference between the authentic and the fake. And praise God, he gives us instruction that that's not really our job, praise the Lord, to separate the wheat from the tares. That will happen in the judgment. And yet, texts like this cause us to pause this morning. True or false? That's the title of today's. It's not an original title. Trust me, I, I looked, I, and the five that I came up with had been taken for hundreds of years. And so I could give you one like from some of the earliest church fathers, homily number 671 on the day of our Lord, such and such. It looks like this title. So who wants to? Boy, that's a good title page, isn't it? But true or false? Um, When you think about a great forest, when you visualize that, there are lots of really big trees. And if you're thinking about a logger, my my wife has family that live in Sugar Grove, North Carolina, which is outside of Boone. And every time I used to say outside of Boone, Martha gives me a whoop because she loves the mountains. I love that. So I whooped for you this morning, Martha. You have guests. I kept you, yeah, decent and in order. So there you go. But... um, Up there, it's not uncommon to see where um, logging companies have come in and cleared off significant swaths of ground. And you're like, oh, my wife loves trees. And so her heart breaks a little bit every time she does it. But she also loves our wood table that a friend of ours made for us. So you got to have wood to make. It's this little thing that kind of, you know, give and take. It's interesting that when loggers come into land that they know they've got all the land up, you would think they would go for the biggest, tallest trees, but oftentimes they don't. They'll leave those. I look at that and think, why would you skip that? Surely you can get more wood out of that, but they know something I don't. A lot of really huge, tall trees in wooded areas are hollow on the inside. They're rotten. They look like they could stand a storm, but they can't. They're the things of storybooks that raccoons live in and come out and owls have a home in and squirrels or the chipmunks, you know. 
uh, come in, Chip and Dale come in and, and take all of Donald's acorns and put them in there. So you think about sometimes what you look at and make a determination on is not exactly the way that it is. Our text this morning has that very thing happening in front of us. People that look strong are actually weak and there's a line that they won't cross. They can only fake for so long. This started out as Jesus teaching on the bread of life and it's called the discourse on the bread of life. He seems to be doing all that he can though to drive the crowd away. Now I didn't take that course in seminary. Like, I haven't read the leadership book that says how to go from many to few. (laughs) Um, It's just not that common. He evidently didn't pray the prayer of Jabez here because he's not enlarging his territories. That only makes about 10 of you that have been Christians for a while laugh. Um, He's actually not running an enlargement campaign. He's running, as Alan Carr refers to it, a successful ensmallment, not a word, campaign. There were over 5,000 men when we started the chapter. We end with 12, and one of them's a devil. Not a good thing. This is not, if this is his resume, you don't hire the guy. How did you do? How was your church growth method? Well, I took 5,000, and through my preaching and teaching, we grew to 12. And one of them's going to kill me, right? Not a, not a promising uh, resume. What's up with that? Here's what's up with that. People like things. People like Jesus when he gives them things. People like things from Jesus. But people don't like when Jesus says, you belong to me. And the only way that I can gather all of my sheep that the Father has already promised me over the course of this world is that I've got to lay my life down for you. Because if Jesus dies... If Jesus dies, then they're wondering, well, wait, if you're gone, how will we get our things? Who's going to feed us bread? Um, The masses reject submitting to Christ's rule, but he is king and master. Doesn't need their permission to be. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He issues a very strong call to commitment. He knows exactly how the crowd, let me say that better. He knows exactly how every person in the crowd is going to respond. Every single individual image bearer, Christ knows who's going to reject him and who's going to receive him. He knows who's in it for what they can get out of it. He lays down the gauntlet and calls for every one of those followers to commit to him and to him alone. And he makes it hard. He makes it hard. Now, I'm not Jesus. I'm reminded of that often. But when I was um, speaking just a few weeks ago in another state, one of the moments in our training was an evangelistic moment. And they said, we want you to give an invitation. I talked with Brother Mark shortly after this had happened. We want you to give an invitation. Well, I did. Y'all been around me for more than five minutes. You know I don't do easy believism or greasy grace or just, hey, wave your phone at me. Praise God you're in the kingdom. That's not how this thing works. But um, I gave an invitation. A youth pastor came up to me afterwards, brother, and said, uh, man, nobody's going to respond to that. I said, the one the Father's dealing with will. And we saw 66 people respond and say, I I I want Jesus. 
I want him to be everything in my life. And they didn't just respond and fill out a card and say something. We put him right in that moment with a student pastor who then said, this is what the next 12 weeks are going to look like. We're going to spend some time together. And they said, I'm in. I'm all in. Christ, when Christ gives an invitation, I want you to see what he does here. There are two things happening. When Christ speaks, he clarifies the call. These are little minor points this morning. But every time you see a discourse from Jesus, he is making plain. Even though he hides some things in parables, he is still making plain the cost of following him. Salvation is free. But he makes claims over every inch of your life once you're his. Christ clarifies the call and he purifies the called. He does it here. We'll see it play out for us in just a moment. Now what I mean by purify the call, I love that because it's, it's a double meaning. As we follow the teachings of Jesus, our lives should get more and more pure and less and less dirty. Amen? You're going to be a bunch of weirdos swimming against the stream of the current. That's okay. You're heading the right direction. They're not. I think it was C.S. Lewis, I believe it says, in a world where everybody's going the wrong way, when you choose to go the right way, you're the one that looks crazy. He purifies the calls. The second thing he does is he purifies the ranks of the call. Because when you see what Jesus said, when you see what this Bible says, and you follow Christ as a biblical Christian, there's a distinction between what people profess and what the believer possess. Christ calls, he, his call clarifies. He makes plain the mission and he, his call purifies. He purifies the ranks. This morning, we're going to spend quite a bit of time, for those of you inductive Bible study fans, we're going to spend quite a bit of time in observation, a little bit of time in interpretation, and then right toward the end, right before you look at your watch and think, is he almost done? I'll give you some uh, practical application that I think speaks for itself. What did Jesus say? We started the text this morning in verse 60. Look back at the text. We started the text here which says, when many of his disciples heard it, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Jesus, you keep preaching like that, you're going to run everybody off. And he said, hold my sweet tea. I'm about to make it worse than that, right? What did he say? What did Jesus say? Well, if you'll allow me to just go back and touch a few things in the discourse, for time's sake, let me give it to you quickly. But if you want to make notes you can at the verse numbers. I would maybe tick down some of these verse numbers. Go back and read the whole discourse. It's the best thing for you to do. But in verses 26 and 27, he told this crowd, you came seeking a sign. You wanted more stuff. You didn't want me. Verse 27, he said, you are wanting your best life now. You don't want forever with me. You want your best life now. Verse 28, the first work that you need to be concerned with is the opposite of working. I need you to believe. Believe in me. Believe in who the Father has sent. Verse 35. I'm better than anything your fathers had in the wilderness. I'm better than manna. I'm not a what is it. I'm the Son of God. Some of you were this last week will get that. Verse 37. Everyone that the Father has appointed for salvation will be mine. Every single person. They're going to be mine. They belong to me and they're going to be mine forever. Verse 44, you cannot come to me unless the Father draws you to me. Verse 45, you cannot be properly taught unless I am the center of your life and meaning. 
You, you can't have biblical Christianity without Christocentric Christianity. Fancy word, I mean Christ as the center. Verse 51, I am the Messiah. I'm the one you've been searching for. But the only way for all of my sheep to come to me, I must suffer and die. Let's actually look at that verse, verse 51. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Listen, listen, listen. You, you want to follow Jesus around for an interesting sermon. This is not the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of those you're like, ugh. The disciples pulled him over to the side, did a debrief, and like, ugh. Man, you, we can't grow anything if you're going to be preaching like that. That's some hard preaching. That's not hellfire brimstone. That's just being completely sold out to Christ. Many of us in this room, though, we read those passages. We hear those words, and we're like, of course, yes, Pastor Chad, that's great. We believe all of that. Don't most people believe that? No. In fact, I would present to you this morning based on the meta narrative of the New Testament and the experience of the church. By the way, most of the Testament is written either about or to the New Testament church. I would present to you this morning that the majority of folks don't believe this. Many don't say that this is the way that it is. There are lots of people in our churches serving in positions of influence who are not walking with Jesus. They love ministry. They love the applause of men. They love the mechanics. They're good administrators. And church is not as bad as the corporate world. And so they're there. A lot of people that are in positions of authority are not disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're simply hanging out with folks who walk with Jesus. Because folks who walk with Jesus are fun to be around. They really are. Some of you are very fun to be around. Some of you walk with Jesus, and we got to work on the fun factor, but still, you're, you're, you're interesting to be around. Somebody asked me the other day, how was your week? I said, textured. That's my new response. Textured. What does that mean? It means exactly what you think it means. Textured. Listen, there are some people that like just hanging out with the folks of Jesus. I want to say something very clearly. I'm not talking about church or Sunday morning gathering here. Hear me clearly. I'm not talking about people leaving this church to go to another church. It's not at all what this sermon is about, so don't think it's any of that. Let me say this. We welcome people to sit in the pews of Grace Covenant Church or to watch us online who are not walking with Jesus. I mean, I hope that you'd be here this morning and, and, and you would see Christ exalted in the way that we sing songs, even in our song selection, in the things we don't do as much as the things that we do as a body, the way that we pray together, the way that we interact with one another. I hope that you, if you're here this morning and don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, eavesdrop on somebody having a casual conversation in the lobby and find Christ there. Not the sports score, whatever's going on. Y'all could talk about that some other time. I mean, when we're together, when we get to shine together and be together, let's reflect Christ. You never know who's watching, who's listening. I hope that this morning, through our prayers and through the preaching of God's word, and when we celebrate baptism together and the Lord's Supper together, you are drawn by the Father to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're not in the way. We're teeing it up for you. That's what I hope. There's room in the pews and there's room online for those who don't yet know the Lord. But our time together on Sunday morning is not distinctly evangelistic in nature. Now, the gospel's all throughout all of the Bible. So if you want me to avoid that, I don't know how to do that. But 
It's not that we're hosting an evangelistic crusade on Sunday mornings. It's not it. This is for the family of God. We make much of Jesus and celebrate him together. This is what we do as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage, though, this passage focuses on a group of, scare quotes here on purpose, disciples who were near Jesus but not with him. This is a large group of men who've taken the title disciples without any of the realities of being a disciple. The whole New Testament fleshes this out well, but our text this morning gets us to thinking about who's real and who isn't. There's some key differences between true and false disciples of Jesus Christ, and they show up in the text. What is a disciple of Jesus? Well, if you just take John's kind of description that seems to beat throughout the whole book of John, a simple explanation would look like this. A disciple is someone who believes on Jesus and continues, keyword, to follow him. I mean, yes, we can get a really robust definition of a disciple. And this would have gotten me probably a C minus on a test in seminary. But can I just keep it plain? Like, how do you know? Well, they believe on Jesus and they live like it and they continue to follow him. Like the winds and waves of this world come against them, but they stay with Jesus. In our text, though, we find some folks who are called disciples for a time, but they walk away. Some who appear to follow Jesus for a while eventually reveal their true colors. John would write about this later in 1 John when he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued, there it is, with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have knowledge. John six sixty six is a haunting text. Look at it again. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It's just like the text from Matthew 7. It's equally as haunting. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is that? To believe on me, the one that was sent by God. On that day, verse 22, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These are people that are checking all the boxes from the earthly perspective. These are people that are in our text this morning uh, that follow Jesus from place to place. They probably cheered with the rest of the crowd when Jesus healed the lame man and made the blind man to see. As they tasted the bread that he created from a small boy's lunch, I'm sure they thought, man, all of our problems are about to be solved. They pushed forward with a surging crowd, trying to make Jesus their king immediately. But now they turn from him, and I can only envision they turn like my youngest does when we tell him that something he had his heart set on is not going to happen. You don't deal with this in your house at all because your kids are awesome. But in my house, when you tell the five-year-old that something that he had his heart set on is not going to happen, it's become kind of like, we're going to correct him. Don't worry. You pray for us as parents. But it's kind of, he, he goes, and then kind of walks like that, right? 
It's just this. You just see the melting of it coming on. I did that. I do that. Trust me. I do it in my heart way more than he does it in life. But I imagine these folks, when they hear this line that they're not willing to cross, they just slump, their heads bow low, and they just slink away. They looked like real disciples. They acted like genuine believers. But when Jesus drew the hard line between religion and total surrender, when he drew the hard line between the activity of the religious and the heart of his disciples, they bolted. In that moment, it became clear that they were fake. Fake disciples come to Jesus for all sorts of reasons, except the one that matters most. In our text this morning, they were coming to Jesus for miracles. He said that in verse 2. They were coming to him to have their bellies filled, 13, 14, 34. And they were coming to him for political power. Wow, those are such dated references. I can't imagine anybody in 2023 thinking that they would come to Jesus to fill their bellies, um, to do miracles for them. Or political power. Yeah, that has no bearing on today's society, does it? Friends, hear me. That is not the gospel. That's a false gospel. And it's still being peddled today. Come to Jesus for health and wealth and success. Joyce Meyer said, who would want to... Get in on something where you're miserable, poor, broke, and ugly, and you just have to muddle through it until you get to heaven. I believe God wants us to have really nice things. That's a warped view of God and an invitation to be a poser. Because let me tell you what that breeds. It breeds a bunch of hollow trees. That the first storm that comes, and you don't get that check clear that you wrote on faith. You're ready to quit on God and everything else. You're ready to curse all the demons that have come against you in your Christian walk. And it's just you being moronic. Don't spend more money than you make. There's not a theology that fixes that. That's not the promise of the gospel. If it was, all the apostles got a bum rap. And God owes an apology to the first century Christians. True disciples are drawn to Jesus by God, the Father, not from the promise of stuff. We make Jesus attractive by walking in obedience to him, not by trying to make Jesus attractive to people. He didn't need us to sell him. He's not a commodity. We're not introducing people to a cause. We're introducing them to the Christ. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's Paul in Corinthians writing, Holy Spirit, 
inspired writing. That's the Bible, God's authoritative word. Here's a summary of it. You don't just come to Jesus. You are blind until God opens your eyes. Your heart doesn't just do like that. The Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin. There's a moment where it clicks and you say, yes, comma, Lord. And it's evidenced by faith in him. That's a gift from God. And repentance is the outworking of that faith. It's textured, it's layered, but it's actually quite simple. God turns the light on and you say yes. I want you to understand something this morning. There's an eternal difference between a true disciple and a false convert. When Jesus preached, he's clarifying the cost of following him and he's purifying the called. If I could draw a picture on a whiteboard this morning and get all of the Sunday school teachers together and the Uh, the um, discipleship group leaders together and the elders and deacons together. And we got in a room and put on a whiteboard and said, let's draw a picture of a discipled Dan or a discipled Donna. What does that mean? All right. What does it look like if somebody's with us from the cradle to the grave and they're walking in obedience? What are the characteristics that we think mark someone? It's not legalism. We're not trying to put everybody in a box. We're just trying to say, what does it look like? Well, I think John this morning gives us at least two things that it has to be. The first, and here's a major note, here's the application, and we're landing the plane, is it means somebody is committed to following Jesus. Not just a a, a momentary decision or getting caught up in some moment, but they have committed. They're all in to follow Jesus. They're all in. John 6.66, there's the text again. It says, and many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Fake disciples see God as a cosmic bellhop to get stuff from. That's why they bolt when the going gets tough. They signed up for something different and it hasn't delivered. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is claiming to be God. He's alerting them to his office of eternal king and Lord when he said, I am the bread of life. The majority of the crowd said, yeah, I'm out. You're you're talking about dying. If you die, who's going to give me stuff? Jesus asked if anyone is offended in verse 61. Remember that? Second verse that Isaac read for us this morning. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? The word offense is scandalizo. You hear the word scandalize? Scandal in that? What he's saying is, are you going to give up believing? Is this your line? Are you going to fall away? Now, let me go back here. Jesus knows everything. So he knew exactly that they were with. He knows who's with him. He knows who's not. He's making a point here. Are you offended by this? He says, listen, it's going to get a lot. Depends on how you look at it. It's going to get a lot more intense than this. This is an easy out for the masses. There's going to be so many opportunities for you to bolt as followers of me. Are you a faker? Are you a follower? Eventually, all the fakers find a reason to check out the strange thing about our text this morning is Jesus seems to make it easy for them. He's like, I know you guys are looking for a reason to leave. Is this it? Being a disciple is more than saying the right things. It's more than just being a part of a group. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is making a commitment to follow him with all of your life for the rest of your life. It's a covenant. And Jesus paid it all and authored it. And he's inviting you to participate in it. If the Father is drawing you to the Son, you will love Jesus, not just his gifts. 
You will desire Jesus, not just his works. JT, hold off on putting that next slide up until I give you this signal. John Piper wrote it this way. Listen carefully to me this morning. The question for our generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all of the friends you've ever had on earth and all the family that you've loved so deeply and all the food you've ever liked and all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, if you could have heaven with all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted and no conflict, no natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? The majority of churchgoers will say yes because that's what they signed up for. A get-out-of-hell-free card because God wants me to enjoy everything. Now, there is incredible joy in serving Jesus. I don't want you to leave here and go find chains and put them on you and walk around like this. Like I said, I am in my heart sometimes when I don't get my way. That's not what I'm calling you. God hasn't called you to a life of misery. He's called you to a life of joy, unspeakable and full of glory. But it's found in walking in obedience to him and dying to self. It's literally anti-counter-cultural. Genuine disciples are committed to following Jesus because Jesus is enough. We didn't sign up for stuff. We signed up for him. While we were yet sinners, the Bible says, Christ loved us. Christ gave himself for us. How can you not love the lover of your soul? How can he not be enough? Genuine disciples commit to following Jesus. And genuine disciples confess faith in Jesus. Genuine disciples confess faith in Jesus. What does that confession look like? Well, look with me at verses 67 to 69. And you see the confession right here in front of us. After this, the disciples, you know, some of them have walked away. So Jesus says to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, verse 69. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. What does a confession of faith in Christ look like? Well, I think it has to acknowledge who Jesus is and it reveals total trust in him. Now, it can be more than that, but it can't be less than that. Some of you have some incredible uh, liturgies and catechisms memorized. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Those are so important and I'm grateful to see that art coming back into the church in this these days but it's got to be at least this when you talk about Jesus when you have a confession of faith in Jesus Christ it's got to be more yeah I believe yeah I'm not a Muslim I'm not a Buddhist I'm not an atheist so I'll check the Christian box no 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 Uh, when you have a confession of faith in Christ as a genuine believer you acknowledge that he is the holy one of God he's exactly who he revealed himself to be Who is Jesus to you? The question might be asked evangelistically. If your answer doesn't match what the Bible says about Jesus, then you're talking about another Jesus. 
When you catch a glimpse of Jesus, when you know that you are being drawn to Jesus by God, your response might look something like Isaiah's did when he saw the Lord in that vision in Isaiah 6 and said, woe is me, as he caught a glimpse of God, for I'm a, I'm a man, I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of an unclean people, but my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You don't come away from an encounter with Christ thinking you're awesome. You come away from an encounter with Christ knowing he's awesome, and you're not. (laughs) And that he loves you in spite of it. Knows every thought you've ever thought, every word you've ever said, every deed you've ever done, and still inviting you to be a part of his family. Come on. Come on. You filtered the report when you met your uh, spouse's parents. Because if they knew everything, they wouldn't have let you out of the house. They called the law. You don't puff up with pride when you've been in the presence of God. You're humble that he let you live to see him and then let you live one breath afterwards. What will you do with Jesus? The second part of that confession. I'll trust him completely. Not just for heaven with him, but for every day. I'll trust that Jesus is interested in my every day. I'll spend time with Jesus every day in his word. I'll spend time with Jesus every day in prayer. I'll spend time with Jesus, watch this, in the fellowship of his bride, whom he loved and died for. There's no prenup here. And we're talking about our commitment and our confession. Now, I know there's some young ears in the room. I'm not going to speak in a way that's unkind or uh, uncouth in any way. But I say prenup, and everybody over 20 knows what it is. There are some uh, married couples, and I'm not here to criticize it, just to use it as an illustration. If you have a prenup, may the Lord bless and keep you. May his face shine upon you. Send all complaints to trash at gracecovenantcharlotte.com. Um, but a prenup is where two couples come together and says, I'm going to be totally committed to you except for this list of things. So I'm all in in this relationship, but you can't ever have these things, right? And it's my just-in-case, it's an out. The prenup is the ultimate just-in-case. That's the culture we live in today. Ashley and I have seen over the last 10 years inviting a certain demographic uh, over to to make a commitment, and and nobody in this church, right? Hallelujah. Amen. Uh, But we've just seen from people, young people especially, that will say, hey, they're like, hey, let's get together and do such and such. Awesome. And so we schedule the very thing they ask us to schedule and do. And then those people say, we're like, hey, are you coming? Like, no, something else comes up. No, no, this is your thing. Like you asked us, this is the thing that you asked us to schedule. Like, yeah, yeah, we'll be there unless something else comes up. Like, no, no, put this on your schedule. Like, what else is going to come up? Just do this. It's adjusting. We live in a just-in-case world. A person stands in front of another person pledging everything in the marriage ceremony, but with certain things already withheld, just in case. A true disciple, a genuine disciple, one who's all in with Jesus, one who's committed and ready to confess their faith, ready to confess their faith, rejects the just in case. A biblical Christian depends completely, totally, and solely on Jesus for her salvation, for his salvation. Like Peter with eyes open and a resolute will, we say, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of life. True or false? Joy Davidman wrote in her book, Smoke on the Mountain, as she was addressing the first commandment and kind of reworded it in the positive sense instead of a negative. The first commandment is, you can say thou if you want to. I know that's how a lot of us learned it. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. She said it like this. The positive inverse is this. 
thou shalt have me. God is saying, have me. Don't, don't look around. Have me. I'm everything you need. I'm everything you could ever desire. I'll unlock desires you don't even know that you have. But you got to have me to do that. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Have me. I've come down from heaven. Have me. I'm it. If you'll have me, you'll live forever. Have me. He gave his life to secure that promise. He alone can nourish you daily when all the material things run out. What will make heaven heaven for the true disciple? Not the mansion, not the streets of gold, not mama or wife, husband, dad, mom, family. What will make heaven heaven for the genuine disciple? The Lord Jesus Christ. As Julia moves to the piano this morning, are you checking him out? Are you going through the motions? Maybe you're here this morning, you're not faking anything. You legitimately are living your life and you're just checking out the claims of Christ. What a blessing to have you with us. I want to tell you something. He's amazing. He's the lover of your soul. God set up this world perfectly and then man got on the scene and ruined it with rebellion. First commandment we had, we rejected God and pushed back on him. And then God began a rescue mission to redeem humanity from itself. You're included in that. So am I. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God has made a way for you to live for him. And that way has a name. It's Jesus Christ. In fact, early believers in that first century I talked about, they were referred to as those who are in the way. Now, not like we say kids get out of the way today, but like the way. They were following the way of Jesus. If that's you this morning, come to Jesus. If you feel drawn to Jesus, pray today. Ask God to save you. Say, Lord, I'm, I'm tired of being a rebel. Cleanse me of my sin. I want to follow you. I want to have you more than anything else. He'll save you. He'll change your life. You can come see me or anybody, really, and we'll talk to you about what life might look like. But maybe you're here this morning and you've been going through the motions. You're faking it. You're holding out for something better. You've got a just-in-case tucked away somewhere. Maybe you're trying to stretch it out with one foot in biblical Christianity and one foot outside just thinking, eh, I don't know. What this crowd wanted, Jesus would not give. I'm going to tell you something too. You may have a list of demands that you want from God. He's not obliged to fulfill those in any way, shape, or form. What the crowd wanted, he wouldn't give. And what he offered, they rejected. And it's still that way today. Do you know who Jesus is? Not just academically. Not just in your head. Do you know who Jesus is? The lover of your soul? Do you trust him completely? Brother or sister in Christ, lest you think the text is solely evangelistic, do we live in a way that confesses him to the world and shows that we are all in? We'd be among the 12. And even in the 12, one was there from the enemy. Let's pray.